there was a sense of shock uh, and a sense of outrage. You know, that, that really did feel like an attack because that was on our home ground. It was in Salisbury. I mean, it would be like someone, it would be like someone contaminating Monticello. I mean, you know, the Magna Carta is in Salisbury. It's a beautiful cathedral town. It's a really nice market city. And, and yet somebody had done that to the extent that we had to deploy our military on our home soil to clean it up. If you're in a in CBRN kit, you, your um, peripheral vision is down, you've got less um, tactile, you, you can't feel what's going on, you can't hear what's going on as easily. We practice every now and again with tear gas or anything, but you know that that's it's not really a problem because you, you might puke or cry a bit, but at the end of the day, you're not going to die from tear gas. This was something which we knew if we didn't do our drills and skills properly, um, there would be very serious consequences, I mean, exceptionally serious consequences. Hey, welcome back to another episode of The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI, and as regular listeners will know, The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. And I think that one of the things that the dozens of stories we've featured demonstrate collectively is how many different forms that experience can take. It can be a long battle or a quick firefight. It can mean fighting on the offense or the defense. That has encouraged us to really explore the boundaries of what it is that defines combat. That's why this episode is a really special one. Last year, after an incredibly dangerous nerve agent was quite shockingly used in the British city of Salisbury, Authorities looked to the armed forces to play a role in the response. My guest on this episode, Major Claudia O'Neill, was part of that response. An engineer officer in the British Army, she explains the mission that she and her soldiers were given. The discussion also touches on some pretty major questions about how we conceptualize combat, military operations, and war. Before we get to it though, just a couple quick notes. First, if you're not yet subscribed to The Spear, you can do so on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please consider taking just a moment and giving it a rating or leaving a review. Second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. And for this episode, I should also note that my guest statements do not reflect the positions of the British Army or the U.K. government. All right, here's my conversation with Major Claudia O'Neill. Uh, Major Claudia O'Neill, thanks very much for joining us for this episode, uh, a really interesting episode, I think, of The Spear. Thanks very much for inviting me, John. I'm really excited about this episode because one of the things, since we launched uh, this podcast series and and recorded dozens and dozens of episodes, one of the things that's really kind of um, kind of struck me is just how individual and how unique uh, each combat experience is. And, and we launched it to kind of uh, the the podcast series to kind of try to get to the nature of the essence of that combat experience and and it is very very varied and uh, in this episode I think we're really going to kind of kind of probe the boundaries of um, you know soldiers' experience uh, uh, at, at at war and and kind of the gray area of what is war. A little bit. So before we get into uh, the discussion, uh, can you talk a little bit about your military background? Uh, sure. So I'm a, a Royal Engineer, a uh, member of the British Army, um, went through Sandhurst, uh, commissioned uh, into 2-2 Engineer Regiment, which is an armoured engineer regiment. We do combat support, um, but I've also served 
uh, in EOD, so um, search and explosive ordnance disposal. Um, but my main background has been in armoured engineering. Uh, we're set up a little bit differently. So our close support engineer regiments don't just provide uh, close support. So what you would recognise as EMO or the armoured engineer close support, but we also do construction. So I've done construction tours too, as well as the search and EOD stuff. So I've been very fortunate to have a very career. Um, at the time Salisbury happened, uh, I was in command of an armoured engineer unit. We had just returned from... Op Shader uh, in Iraq, so supporting uh, the Americans in Al-Assad Air Base, in fact, and that was predominantly a construction tour. Um, and when Salisbury uh, happened, uh, we had just finished our post-tour leave. We'd done a bit of training to get ourselves back on our armoured engineering vehicles um, and to get in practice with our combat engineering again uh, in preparation to go to Canada, actually. So uh, it came out of the blue, uh, if I'm totally honest. Uh, but um, nothing that we wouldn't expect an engineer unit to be able to cope with. Um, now, that's a really good uh, kind of segue into this. The, kind of the first question I have about this is, so we're talking about, obviously, the uh, the Salisbury, the, the use of uh, an agent there um, and, and the response to it. Um, you know, you had just come back from an operational tour and in the normal sort of, uh, I guess, cycle of things, you come back, you sort of recover and refit, and then you get into training, right? Um, so your mindset shifts from one, from, you know, operations to, to really to training. And then one day uh, something happens and you have to kind of shift back into that operational mindset. Did you find that, did you find that to be difficult at all? Uh that's an interesting question, actually, John. So you're right, we had shifted back. Um, we're on something in UK called Operation Tempera, which is um, units are constantly on standby now to assist the civil authority in case of um, a requirement for additional assistance. So that could be, it's been stood up uh, for terrorist attacks, but it's also been stood up for flooding and, and things like that. So as a unit, we were on Operation Tempera, uh, so we're stood by to provide assistance. Um, but I, so we were in, uh, in the mindset that we'd come back off of tour. Um, we had had our leave. We were starting to do our training again, uh, and in preparation, as I said, to go and do combat engineer stuff. But in the back of our minds, we knew that we could be called on to assist the civil authority. I, I think what was a surprise to us was not that we were called on to assist. That is part of our job as, as a service. It was more the manner of our assistance, which we were slightly surprised by. So how, how far is your unit from, from Salisbury? Uh, we were really lucky, actually. We uh, we were only about 45 minutes away, uh, 40 minutes away. Um but some of the units um, that went forward to assist initially, so um, that we weren't the only unit that assisted when it when it first started. Uh, for example, there was a requirement to move a lot of vehicles that were known to be contaminated, and that was done by one of uh, one of our other regimental subunits, actually Falcon Squadron RTR, um, and they were stood up within six hours uh, to start shifting vehicles to and from Salisbury. Um, and into safe areas, um, and, but they were about an hour and a half away. Um, and then we had the specialist um, units, the joint unit is an RAF unit, and they they work about four hours away. Uh, they come on, they came online around about the same time we did. 
Um, so it was uh, it was quite varied. We were fortunate in that um, we were relatively close, and, and salt was a known quantity to us. But if anything, that made it all the more um, difficult to adjust to what we were doing because sure. it was in essence happening in our backyard. And 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 when do you do you remember the the moment that you first sort of heard, hey, something's going on? And if so, um, what what you know what were the first reports that you were getting? Were you watching it on TV like most of the world was, or did you hear through other channels? Yeah, so the the poisoning happened on the on the fourth of March, and the the first public response, um, kind of, or we acknowledge the UK kind of um, said on the BBC the first public response on the sixth of March, um, but the first military units didn't deploy until the ninth, and and that was that Falcon Squadron that I mentioned that was moving uh, vehicles around, and to try and move them from public spaces. So, for instance, Mr. Skripal and his daughter had driven into Salisbury, and of course, they were now in hospital. Their car was still in the car park. It was thought that it was probably contaminated. That car would have to be moved. Falcon Squadron were the squadron that were drafted in to do that. And as I said, they had six hours' notice. Um, and similarly, there were other military units that were brought in to assist. So, that happened a few days afterwards. Um, when the cleanup order came, so that was actually a couple of weeks after. The or you know, I think it was about two weeks after that initial military response. Uh, to be frank, we were, I thought it was um, I don't know what the American equivalent is, but I thought it was a war uh, when it first came through. <laughs> we thought it was a joke mm. um, because it, it just wasn't anything we expected to to have to do. And then uh, kind of we got told by our, our regimental command, "No, this is this is a real job, and you're you're going to go forward and do it." Um, so we had been aware of it. As I said, we'd been aware of the work that Falcon Squadron had, had been doing. They'd been incredibly busy um, moving a large number of vehicles around. Um, and they had been uh, doing stuff we knew that um, was you know, very unusual. They were having to create new SOPs. They were having to think, out, think through new drills. So we were aware that they had been doing that. Um, and then it was... It was a surprise when we got called forward. And then you also, from a military perspective, really quite exciting because we knew that we'd have the opportunity to do similar kind of work, but through a saposphere. Uh, a little bit scary as well because uh, we knew the, a bit more about what was going on. Um, but, yeah, it was, uh, it was a bit of a surprise, I'll be honest. And so your... The, the mission that you uh, that your unit was given was one of... Um... I, what was it? How would you characterize it? So we were called in to do the cleanup. Um, so if you think um, Mr. Skripal and his daughter um, moved around through the centre of town to a number of different locations uh, after they had been, you know, before they fell ill, but they were contaminated when they did it. Uh, so you will have seen on perhaps on the BBC or on your news, uh, you will have seen the car. But we know that they also went to a pub um, and then they went for lunch at a restaurant and and then they fell ill in a public park. Um, Plus, we knew that the house was contaminated as well. So we were brought in as the people to decontaminate, uh, to essentially to clean up those sites. Um, So if you think the the reason why the sappers were brought in was um, at the we were still developing an understanding of how to clean up the agent. And we... uh, we knew that there'd be some, or DSTL, so our science experts, knew that although we might be able to clean some surfaces, other surfaces or other items would just have to be removed. 
So if you think you're essentially there were bits of buildings that were going to have to be deconstructed and that was a pretty technical job. As a sapper, we have tradesmen. So I have I had plumbers, electricians, carpenters, bricklayers, all who worked for me. So in the same way they could construct something, they could also deconstruct it, which would be the safest way to then decontaminate the area if it couldn't be cleaned with the with the cleaning agents that we had. So so that was my job um, to kind of task the to to task the tradesmen to go in. Uh, look at what needed to be deconstructed, um, assess how we could best do that in a safe manner, um, and then um, kind of carry out that work. Um, and also there was a large part, as it transpired, was was also in the disposal um, of that waste as well. You The best way to kind of package it up for disposal um, too, because clearly you didn't want to carry on the contamination. Um, so that was our part. We worked very closely with... Uh, the RAF regiment who have uh, uh, decontamination skills. So uh, they were also, as the CBRN kind of expertise, holding greater expertise than us, we worked very closely with them to ensure that our SOPs were safe. So I would say our biggest challenge was developing techniques which we could use. So if you think um, using a bit of plant, you know, so like a digger wearing for Romeo, is quite challenging. So wearing, so operating plant around people is is quite dangerous anyway. Even if you're not wearing full Romeo and you have full sight, you know, you're not wearing a face mask and you're not wearing big gloves. So our biggest challenge was developing techniques which made practices which are already not dangerous but have a have an aspect of risk to them, and then adding that extra layer of complexity, i.e., working in a CBRN environment um, and making sure that we were doing it. In, in the safest possible way, but also delivering um, delivering the eff- the effect, which was a decon was either deconstruction or decontamination. I want to come back to you know you mentioned the kit that you were wearing, and I have a specific question about that. Um, but first, I guess a more general question: um, Did you feel prepared? You know, you said you talked about your job and and the way that engineers really the purposes that they serve uh, generally uh, in the British Army. Uh, you're sort of a jack of all trades. Um, did that make you feel particularly prepared to do this, or did you feel like a little bit out of your element? Um, so I'll split that into two. I think when it came to planning, I, I think we were all pretty comfortable with the planning process and how we would approach tackling a problem. So, uh, uh, as in the intellectual question of a problem, um, when it came to doing the CBRN drills. Um, so we do, uh, I'm sure you do as well in America, John, but but we do kind of our annual mats, so our annual tests to see how, um, which includes CBRN. Um, we very definitely uh, would not have been comfortable going straight in on day one with having just done that test. So again, um, we spend a long time working with our CBRN school, putting together essentially an RSOI programme to make sure that everyone was fully confident with the kit and equipment, um, that they were happy with their drills and skills, um, and that they were conf- that they were confident. So the sappers were confident um, in what they were doing and the drills and skills that they were then going to have to exercise. And also from a section commander's point of view, because you the whole point of going over the hotline was that we wanted to put minimum number of people in that kind of 
in that kind of risk. So you're always trying to minimise the number of people forward. So we had to have faith that uh, that they were doing it correctly. They had to have faith they were doing it correctly. But also the section commanders had to really up their game. So they were able to kind of check and, and assure their men that they were doing skills correctly. And these were all not new, but we were having to build them up to a higher level than we had before. Um, you So a huge amount of, I mean, real mission command and real trust in our guys um, and kind of really developing that buddy-buddy system because it can feel quite lonely if you're in a in CBRN kits because you, you, your um, peripheral vision is down, you've got less um, tactile, you, you can't feel what's going on, you can't hear what's going on as easily. Um, so it was a real kind of leadership test at, at the very lowest level from the section commanders. You that real kind of junior leadership of checking their men, kind of sometimes actually having to kind of tap them on the shoulder, look at you, kind of look them in the eye, check that they're okay. The troop commander going forward doing the same thing with his section commanders, um, and and that's how we built the trust in the skills and drills. Um, and a lot of that was also through rehearsals. So we didn't do a single task which we hadn't rehearsed. You. Three, four, five times on models that we built in the uh, in the camp, or kind of practice areas that we built within the camp. You exact replicas where we could, um, just again to make sure the guys were fully confident in what they were doing because it is an alien. Uh, it feels alien, and although you might think you know it intellectually, um, when you're actually doing it, it, it it's different. And it was really ensuring that the guys, and in particular the junior commanders and the troop commanders, were absolutely confident in what they were doing. That's really interesting. Um, and I think it gets to, you know, we like to use, at least in the US military, we like to use these sort of um, buzzwords, buzz phrases, uh, so to speak, train as you fight, and that try to draw a linkage between um, training and doing something for real. Um, and yet there is a pretty clear, bright line that divides the two. The feeling that you have when you put on your kit and you're going out for a training exercise versus putting it out, putting it on your kit and going out and doing it for real is very, very different. Was it, um, was it strange? Was it, was it strange to be putting on, I guess in the U S we call it mop gear, your, your, uh, you know, NBC or CBRN suits. Was it strange to be putting that on and knowing, Hey, I really, really need this stuff to protect me against a potentially life-threatening agent absolutely and doing so in 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 your home country Uh, yeah i mean uh, i'll split again i'll split that into two absolutely it it was a very different feeling Um, and even i'm sure you do the same you know we practice every now and again with tear gas or anything but you know that that's it's not really a problem because you you might puke or cry a bit but at the end of the day you're not going to die from tear gas this was something which we knew if we didn't do our drills and skills properly um, it, there would be very serious consequences, I mean, exceptionally serious consequences, and not only to the person, but also if we didn't, for instance, decontaminate appropriately, or we didn't follow the skills and drills that were coming in and out of the hot zone, then we risked further contamination outside of an area, you know, what we didn't want to do was spread it even further. So that was another thing that we were thinking about. So it very definitely honed the mind um, a lot clearer. You, it, there was that clarity which you get when you're in, um, you when you're in combat. So you, you had it when well, we certainly had it when we were in Afghanistan. When things kind of start slowing down and everything becomes a lot clearer, when contact is called and then, and then life starts speeding up again. 
that certainly was our experience going into that environment. You asked about doing it in our hometown. That was quite shocking, if I'm honest. And, and you asked about my response when, when we were first given the job. Um, though I would say that there was a sense of shock uh, and a sense of outrage that someone had done that to you that when we or certainly when I saw the the extent of the contamination and the seriousness of the contamination um, and the implications if it wasn't cleaned up you know, if we didn't get everything out of there the implications that if it was left dirty in any way were, were serious and uh, you know that was I yeah, that that really did. I think we discussed it before, John, but that really did feel like an attack because that was on our home ground. It was in Salisbury. I mean, it would be like someone, it would be like someone contaminating Monticello. I mean, you know, the Magna Carta is in Salisbury. It's a beautiful cathedral town. It's a really nice market city, and and yet somebody had done that to the extent that we had to deploy our military on our home soil to clean it up. Um, to the extent that we were with something that was so dangerous that it could have serious implications for not just you know a couple of people but potentially hundreds or thousands of people uh, and that was uh, quite a strong feeling as well you know i don't want to put you in a position where you're saying oh british lives are you know necessarily feel more important to you than than say afghan lives or iraqi lives or or anything but um did the stakes seem particularly higher because you were at home I, Maybe I'm, on sort of like an instinctive, like like sort of base level. Um, I I wouldn't say it was a sense of lives, but you you mentioned kind of Afghan and Iraq. You I expected it there, so um, I deployed out to Iraq and I deployed out to Afghanistan, and I expected to be in danger, um, and I expected that somebody would want to do me harm because you know, that was the nature of where I had gone and the job which I had gone to do in those countries. Um, I did not expect to feel that way in Salisbury. Um, as I said, it would be like you feeling that way when you, you know, went to, you know, I don't know, downtown, you know, downtown New York or downtown Savannah or, or somewhere like that. You, you don't expect to feel that way um, in your own home. Um, and similarly, I think it was the arbitrary nature of it. So, Absolutely, um, Afghan and Iraqi lives matter. But I would like to think, and I'm sure you would like to think, that we certainly never used force arbitrarily. You, know, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a free for all. Or certainly, in my experience, we never used our our lethal force in that way. There was always a targeting. There was always a directed. Um, we were always aiming at somebody or something. And I'm not in any way saying that we didn't have collateral damage. Yes, we did, but it was never intentional. But this agent was put down from what we could see callously. So it was delivered in such a way that there, it was pretty much a miracle that there weren't more casualties. And in that sense, it was um, there was a sense of outrage about that, the callousness with which such a lethal agent had been deployed and the impact that it could have had on the population was something that I found very shocking, um, that um, you would be willing to use something that was that dangerous and and put it in a place where 
you it could have contaminated huge numbers of people and it was very fortunate that we didn't or that that it didn't apologies not us that it didn't that's what i found um that's i think that's what we all found very shocking deeply shocking how long did the uh cleanup operation go on uh, it's still going on okay um, uh, yeah. You... So the um, to give you a uh, to be, give you some context, the the house is very his house is very definitely still ongoing. And although I'm I'm not working uh, on that project anymore, I know for instance they think they may have to remove the roof um, to make sure that it's completely clean. So how long were you and 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 soldiers working for you uh, in Salisbury? Uh, so we were doing it for three months, uh, and then. Um, some of our teams stripped out. We left uh, because of the skills transfer. We did kind of a graduated um, move of our guys and, and kind of transferred it. So a bit of a rip to other sappers that were doing it. And it's been rotating through since then. Was it, um, you know, there's there's a there's an element of fatigue, I think, that gets set in when you're operationally active for a long time. You know, deployment goes on longer and longer and it, and it starts to wear on you. Did you experience any of that or did you see any of that in, in any of the soldiers if you're doing this for three months? Yes, and, and we found it was quite um, stop-start uh, as well. So um, we were working very closely with uh, the Department of the Environment. So the cleanup operation was, although we were the people doing the physical cleanup, alongside the RAF regiment and Falcon Squadron, the overall um, c- command and control was through the UK Department of the Environment, DEFRA. Um, and you're working with civilian agencies. They had different priorities, different timelines, different speeds. Um, so we found that it was we would move very, very fast and then stop, um, and then move very, very fast again and then stop to move in line with DEFRA. And in that in that sense, it wasn't so different from when we'd been on tour in Iraq and Afghan, um, because as as you know, you you have moments where it's it moves incredibly fast and then you're kind of stagnating mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, but I would say that challenge of C two and that challenge of priorities um, and pace uh, was there, uh, and that was to an extent driven by the military civilian um, interchange. How do you feel now when you look back on it? Um, you look back to last March when you first heard about it, and then you, look, you, know, you think back to this three-month period where um, you know you were very closely involved with the cleanup. Uh, do you have any sort of lingering thoughts or feelings? Um, I think my my first reaction when I think about it is is a real sense of pride in the soldiers that that did it. You were talking about guys who, as I said, did a, a CBRN test once a year. Um, and they went from doing that to being comfortable for operating for you know, a number of hours every day in CBRN equipment. Uh, they had the, innova- the innovation and the technical skills to sit down and develop new ways of working. So how do you do plumbing or, or electrician work in CBRN equipment? You know, how do you use plant? And they all thought that through and developed it and between us we worked out training programs and assurance processes to make sure that it was done in a safe way and so my my first sense is a real sense of pride in and for the soldiers and the troop commanders that and the recce sergeants that that really did the hard graft on this 
um, and and also from Falcon Squadron and, and the RAF Regiment, who did similar things within their areas of expertise. You're really driving on the hoof innovation in a field which you know, we had, we weren't particularly experienced in. In fact, we weren't experienced in at all. Um, my second my second feeling would be I think I mentioned that sense of outrage that somebody had used an agent that was that lethal um, so arbitrarily you know, against potential civilian target you know, that a large number of civilians could have been hurt um, and could have died and that that was done on our home ground um, you know, in, in our home and so arbitrarily I think that would be my second uh, reaction. You know, the fact that this uh, took place in Salisbury uh, and not, you know, in some you know, sparsely populated more rural area, a small village, um, necessarily, I think, has a lot of challenges because there are a lot of people. There's a lot more places that you have to just kind of track down as you piece together um, the Skripal's um, movements that morning to see, hey, where do we need to focus our cleanup efforts? Were there any particular challenges associated with, you know, Salisbury is a pretty sizable city. Um, was that? Is that particularly difficult? So all of that work was done by the UK police and you know, I'm sure you're tracking um, the international coalition that uh, kind of came out and ended up expelling you, putting forward evidence to the international community that then convinced them to expel. I think in total it was about 163 Russian diplomats off the basis of the evidence and and that was a really really impressive piece. So we we had some links, not very strong links, but we had some links with the with the UK police who were going through each of the sites, um, piecing together the CCTV, figuring out where Mr. Skripal and his daughter had been, and then doing the forensic examination and figuring out you essentially putting together a watertight case. And and I think this links a bit to your comment at the beginning about the grey zone. You know, I think this really is a good example of grey zone conflict against us. And I I think the UK response of um, this very methodical, absolutely evidence-based approach of dispelling what was in essence kind of fake news or proving that this was what had happened to the extent that the international community was convinced that to the extent that they were willing to expel that number of Russian diplomats was really very impressive. But you spoke about the impact on Salisbury. Um, it was pretty profound. So in some areas of Salisbury, I believe the, the kind of shopping throughput, you know, the economic impact was up to 80%, 80%. And that's that's pretty profound. We also found that working in that area, as you mentioned, was pretty challenging. So, for instance, in some of the sites which were more open, um, we were unable to move without press um minicopters, so press UAVs flying above us and filming what we were doing. Um, that adds a level of complexity uh, to what you're up to, because also we don't want to expose some of our drills. Um, you to, so, And also you're under press scrutiny straight away. Um, and ingress and egress of the site, you don't want to, you know, if you're removing contaminated materials, when do you do that? How do you minimise the impact on the public? Um, and then the other one is it's just not very it's just not great for the public to to have large areas of their city cordoned off. So you know how quickly could we, uh, if anything, clean up the periphery to then collapse that cordon to the smallest possible area that was safe that we could then work in, 
uh, to minimise the impact on Salisbury. But I mean, the good thing is, uh, I, I don't know how familiar you are with the UK, but it's not usual for us to, for instance, roam around in our uniforms. Um, but the people of Salisbury got really behind us, um, you know, and that was great to see as well. And you, know, we certainly enjoyed becoming part of the community in that way, mainly because we were assisting them. So I guess I'll ask just kind of this last question. Acknowledging that, um, you know, clear distinctions between war and peace um, arguably have become um, more difficult to identify. Um, in your personal experience, did this feel like war? It felt like we had been attacked um, in the sense that you uh, are on our home nation, someone had released a nerve agent. Um, you in, in any other book, that's a that's a chemical biological attack. Um, did it feel the same as walking out the gate in Afghanistan? Um, no, it but similar in the sense that you were rolling out the gate and the adrenaline was pumping and you knew that you were going out to go and do a job. Um, and that that was dangerous and that you were doing it um, for the benefit of others and you were only going to do it uh, if you completed it as a team. Um, so in that sense, it was similar. Um, and there was also that sense of um, danger because uh, you, you were working with you're one of the most toxic agents uh, in the world. Um, so that I would say there were many aspects that were that were very similar so yes well Chloe thanks very much for taking some time to talk to us this is um, I think like I said really really fascinating and uh, an incredible addition to the series of episodes that we've been uh, recording and, and, and publishing for the Spear so thank you very much for joining us well thank you very much John Thanks for listening to The Spear. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is the best way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again for listening.